Hello, my friends. This is life coach Mike Chargman, and welcome to an episode of Mike's Search for Meaning. I'm after some big questions. Why are we here? What makes a fulfilling life? How can we grow individually and collectively? Each episode, I'll dive deep with leaders who are doing great work in the world and see how they organize their life. Books read, value systems, resources used, and stories that show how each of you can create the life and the world of your dreams. My guest today is Danielle Savory. Danielle is a master certified coach, speaker, podcaster, and influencer who has helped countless women transform their relationship to their sexuality and experience juicy pleasure in and out of the bedroom. Danielle weaves together her background in neuroscience, her expertise in mindfulness, and skills as a coach to help women rewire their brains and connect with their bodies in the most orgasmic way. The host of the It's My Pleasure podcast, she lives in Portland, Oregon with her husband, two daughters, and her dog, Bruce. And this feels like a theme of late. This one is an edgy conversation for me. Sexuality in our culture, especially in American culture and Western culture in general, it's something that I think a lot of us have shame about, and it's very taboo to speak about with friends, with family, and yet it's, of course, the reason that all of us are here. And Danielle brings a, a very unique healing lens to this work. She has a background, like I said in the intro, in neuroscience, and she also understands lots about somatics, about trauma, and so... Uh, pleasure and desire are things that she knows how to cultivate outside of the bedroom so that we can show up in the bedroom with more of a full expression of ourself, more wholeness, more aliveness. So there's very specific, tangible things you're going to take away from this conversation. We talk about I want practices and communicating what we want and what our desires are and just how foreign and uncomfortable that might be for folks we talk about spontaneous versus reactive desire. There seems to be a belief that sex should just happen spontaneously and we're just going to magically have the desire to start having sex. And in this conversation, we unpack how we can build in routines or even schedule sex and set up time so that we can get in the mood, set the lighting correctly, the temperature. We talk about frequency of sex. We talk about masturbation. We cover all things sex. And it's a really wonderful, fruitful conversation. I think that you're going to get a lot out of this one. I got so much from this conversation. With all that said, settle in. Take a deep breath. And enjoy what Danielle has for us today. Danielle, thanks so much for joining Mike Search for Meaning and welcome. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited to get into this. It feels like a very, sexuality feels like a very edgy topic for me to explore. And just for a little bit of color, I'm 31 years old. And for most of my life, I've been in groups of guys where talking about sex or, or talking about women was done in a way that, I don't know, I was always kind of just like the guy who's awkwardly sitting in the corner 
and mm -hmm. felt like I, I didn't belong. And in doing my homework on you and, and researching more about what you do, it was almost like a, a giant uh, sigh of relief for me in that I, the conditioning around sex and sexuality is one way and it never felt right for me and I, I never felt like I belonged. And so I'm, I'm really excited to explore this with you today. And before we go there, I, I always start my interview by asking what it was like at your dinner table when you were growing up. Mm, good question. Well, it depends on what time, <laughs> like in, in my childhood, I think that would be different because there was a time where we were really busy. My mom was a jazzercise instructor. This was back in the eighties. <laughs> so she usually taught in the evenings. And so she was gone and it was me and my sister and my dad, and we were Trekkie fans. So usually we were watching Star Trek and, you know, <laughs> geeking out on that. But we've always had a lot of conversation at the dinner table. We were one of those families that oftentimes would eat at dinner, even if we then would watch, you know, Star Trek afterwards. And then I was an athlete later on. So my gymnastics practice always so my dinner ended up being eaten in the car on the way home because I'd miss dinner every night when my gymnastics got really competitive. <laughs> so that is always switched. But, you know, I think a lot of jokes, that's what I remember at the dinner table, a lot of jokes, a lot of laughing, and also like, what's going on? Like, what's going on at school? Or how are your grades? Or those sorts of things. So those are most of my memories from childhood and growing up around the dinner table. Mm-hmm. Were you, did you always feel supported in, in as much as like whatever path you wanted to take in your career and your life was, as long as it was within some sort of reason was uh, met receptively by your parents? You know, that's an interesting question that I've been exploring a lot lately because, you know, from like my original answer to that would always be like a hundred percent. Yes. But now looking back, I'm, I'm questioning, not because they weren't supportive. They've always been very supportive of me, but it did feel like at, it had to be in a certain realm that was understood to them. So if it was like, you know, to them, I felt like, you know, it was, school and then college and then you go on and because I was a high achiever and you know was getting straight A's that was never a problem but when I started to get a little bit more into the creative realms like in high school I was really into drama and you know a little bit more of like that side of me and that creative side it wasn't that it wasn't supportive, but like my dad was the one that I would have conversations about my future with the most. And it was more that it was not understood. And it was just kind of like, well, that's great. Like, I like that you enjoy that kind of thing, but that's not a realistic path, right? Like mm. that's not a path that's going to be able to support you. You need to make sure that you're making choices now that are going to set you up for a future of success. And that future of success was very regimented of like, these are the classes and I was good, really good at math and science. So I should be focusing on those because that's going to give me a lot more options later in life to have a career that supports me. And so now I'm seeing that there was definitely more of like a very drawn out agenda, probably passed down to him too, or what he had known was this was the way to do it. So 
I had felt, you know, and now looking back, like there was a lot of restrictions in how, and, you know, if I would have said, I don't want to go to college, that would have not been received mm-hmm. <laughs> well at all. Or had I decided that I just wanted to major in something more creative, like art or even philosophy or something like that, or poetry was something I was interested in that probably would have not been as supportive or supported. Again, these are assumptions, but based on kind of the <laughs> syllabus that was yeah. laid out for, this is the way that you do life. I don't think those things would have been encouraged as much, not that they don't support me and they don't love me or whatever I do, but it wasn't understanding around that type of a path as much, if that makes Mm. sense. It does make sense. So where did that lead you as you entered college years and were considering what you wanted to do as a vocation? I mean, I, I know that you from doing the research on you, you had elements of like, you're really into neurochemistry and you wanted to understand the brain and human psychology. And then it sounded like you maybe sprinkled in the arts with like Buddhist philosophy and maybe other types of philosophy. So where did it lead you on, on your journey to start professionally? Well, I think that's, you know, because of that, like syllabus and that kind of regimented, this is the way you do it. What I learned later on I went to England and I did a neuroscience program out there. And then I came back and I really wanted to be a brain surgeon and like, kind of like how best to be able to go about that and had done all the check marks since there. And I realized like, wait a minute, I actually don't want to do this. Like, this isn't something that I want to do. It just felt like I'm supposed to, or I should, or this is like how I lined myself up for. And this is kind of the epitome of success. Like if I can do this, right. You know, and it was that thriving for that validation and that, you know, like achievement mark rather than something that actually lit me up. And so, you know, to make a long story short, I feel like that syllabus that I kind of had for life in this regiment away of all of the shoulds and this unconscious people pleasing that was happening for, you know, my family and my peers and people around me led me to a complete burnout, led me to, you know, at a very young age where my body just started shutting down because I really wasn't honoring what I wanted to do. I had created so much pressure of like what I should do. And during that period of, I mean, I was basically bedridden for two years with, you know, like, Oh, it might be, you know, lupus. It might be MS. It might be, you know, fibromyalgia. Like we don't really know. It's like one of those undiagnosed, like lots of pain, can't do like activities of daily living sort of situations. And really it was just a disconnect now looking back between my mind and my body and my desires in life and listening to those and a lot of inner critic and a lot of shooting. And, and it was that acknowledgement and also that switch and that awareness of what was going on that I had no idea that internal dialogue and that narrative that had been pushing me down for so long and trying to keep me in this box that was, you know, this sounds traumatic, but like killing me, <laughs> like, yeah. Killing yeah. Me, like my soul and my body and my fire and like, you know, really just breaking my immune system down from the inside with all of the stress that I was creating for myself. And so it was kind of through that breakdown that I had that breakthrough and that, you know, like piece by piece, it's like one step in front of the other led me, you know, okay, well, 
let's, this is a mindfulness thing. And then this is this. And then it started getting me to teach mindfulness and hold circles for women. And seeing one of the things that had come up for me a lot was like sexuality and desire and being an object of pleasure. And that whole like should, when I really desired a deeper connection and how pretty much every woman that I talked to is also experiencing the same thing where I just started piecing all of these things together from my you know, educational background in neuroscience and Buddhist psychology. And then my teaching and experience with mindfulness and mind body. And then it was like, oh, this mm-hmm. actually all goes together into one thing. Mm-hmm. So as you were two years being bedridden, of course, that, yeah. that must have forced a lot of reflection. And it, it, in a lot of ways, it sounds like it forced your hand into paying attention to how can I get better? And so you discuss a little bit there that you had mindfulness practices and then started teaching mindfulness. And then there must've mm-hmm. been a collection of experiences and learnings and, and personal development work that you did that got you to, to where you are today right. was, was uh, coaching or sex or both were they top of mind or was it, it basically was like survival. And then this piece by piece, it, it kind of emerged. Like was, was sex always something that you thought this would be a really interesting area to focus my career on? Uh, no, absolutely not. <laughs> it just, <laughs> it came, it came like kind of, you know, I mean, it started making sense later on. I mean, like you said, you know, and when I say bedridden and I wasn't like completely restricted to my bed, but I was in bed for most of the 24 hours every single day because of pain. I just want to clarify, because I think that some people are like, oh, you never get out of bed. No, I got out of bed, but not often. And what I started noticing, even when I was able to get out of bed, the experiences that didn't have pain associated with them. So that was like the first key actually was like, I would notice that when I was there, like if I went to a yoga class, I couldn't actually do the yoga poses, but if I just lay there and breathed and imagine myself doing the yoga poses, I had so much pain relief in that moment. When I am a big hiker, when I would get to a trailhead, the whole drive there, I would be in so much pain. Like I could sometimes have a really hard time gripping the steering wheel, but the minute I got right past the trailhead and onto the trail, it was like, my body didn't feel pain. And it was this really like interesting thing. Like what is the connection there. And my husband and I were newly married at the time and we were wanting to have a family. So obviously sex is involved in that, at least for us as a heterosexual couple, it was right. And so I didn't want to be touched. Like this was a huge like connector from us from the beginning was just that sexual chemistry and attraction. And I was experiencing so much pain, like the sheets hurt me, let alone my husband touching me. So that became like, okay, how can I be with pain and experience pleasure here? Right. How can I, and so I started playing with that and, you know, historically, even in high school, I was very open about sexuality. It was really easy for me to talk to. Like my friends always came to me to talk about it. Like when I turned 18, it was like, I went to a porn shop to buy my first vibrator. Like that was like my thing. So I was always very interested and very open about it. And again, like it was never something that made me turn red or 
create tension and I could joke about it. I could talk about it. People would open up to me about sex all of the time. And so it just felt like this natural transition, like not only my own struggles with it, but just, it never felt taboo in my mind. It never felt taboo in my body. It felt like something that like, of course, we're going to talk about it. Like everybody's doing it. Right. And I could easily make jokes about it. And it was just very light. And I realized how different that was than most people, like how I would see them tense up when I brought the subject up, how they had this hard time, even as I was working through my own stuff. And I think it was just all these clues that was like, oh, this is exactly the thing that I should be coaching on because I do create a safe space for that. It is easy for me to talk about. And I had to go through so much, not just my own pain experience and my mind body connection and everything that was going on with my husband, but miscarriages, I've had sexual assault history, sexual threats, like all of these sorts of things in my life. Like there was so much healing that had happened that continued to happen Plus the fact that it was something that I was so interested in because nobody talks about it in the way of the brain, right? Like we talk about it as yes. something that just happens. And I was fascinated because the connections that I was making and the research that I was doing and what I was learning with the mind body connection and the teachers that I was following I was like, oh, this is what's going on with sex. Oh, this is why women aren't experiencing desire. And then really focusing on the socialization and all of that. It just, it was fascinating to me. And honestly, I feel like it's the missing part in so many people's uh, self-growth journeys and their wholeness. And we keep leaving that part out. But when we really start to incorporate it is when we get to experience that whole level of humanity. And that alone, it felt like the pinnacle of self self-growth and self-improvement. And so like the high achiever doesn't die in you. I was like, that's it. That's the one I want to focus on. It's such important work and it's such a big need. It, it's, there might be other things, that, but nothing's coming to mind that every single person, pretty much every single person does or, and every person is a product of and relatively few people talk about it at all. And so it's, yeah. I, I really think that while you and I content wise as coaches are doing different stuff, but there's a lot of healing to be done in so many different areas of our life. And I, I love the angle that you take on it. And the word pleasure has come mm -hmm. up a few times now. And yeah. pleasure and desire are also words that if you talk about it with a lot of folks, there's like a jumpiness. So like, <laughs> yeah. the, Oh, what does that mean? Like pleasure is that's like eating a bowl of ice cream or, uh, yeah. you know, wa watching a sunset. It, it's not something that is looked at as you know, something that we can cultivate in our relationships and in our work as much. And so I want, I would love to hear about that. And I've also heard you say that, uh, heterosexual women are the least sex, uh, least sexually satisfied people yes. in, at least in our country. <laughs> yeah. So I would love to hear you talk about that and about pleasure and desire. 
Yeah. Well, this is that. <laughs> That's a lot right there. So let's start with the uh, pleasure because pleasure, it, you know, I think it's like we do have, especially in our culture here, there's a very negative connotation, at least the way that it's talked about, right? It's like, but usually the way that we focus on pleasure is through, you know, what I like to call false pleasures. And I've heard that from someone I don't know who originally came up with false pleasures. But anyway, this idea of pleasures as like the indulgence of food or alcohol or drugs and also sex, right? It's sex in a, uh, not in a connective way. It's also lumped into there. And the way that it's even talked about in religion and in everything else, it's like, we should be able to push these off. We shouldn't have these things. Pleasure is bad. And we kind of take these things that people might overuse and really indulge in and put pleasure in this whole camp where pleasure is essential. It's essential for us as human beings. It's part of joy. It's part of happiness. It's part of satisfaction. And when it comes to having a deep, intimate connection, sexual pleasure is a huge part of it. Like, you would hope that you're experiencing pleasure in this connection and that it's not something that, you know, is a disconnected experience or one out of obligation or all these sorts of things. But when you really dive into like how pleasure impacts us, and especially for women and those socialized as women, pleasure is like the, on the back burner, right? It's like the last thing, like if, if we don't have self-discipline, then pleasure might leak in because we overeat or something like that. So it's always been considered a reward, but then also considered something where you don't have any control over yourself or self-discipline. And when it comes to sex, women are been socialized to be, you know, objects of pleasure rather than those that are actually experiencing the pleasure themselves. And so to be able to prioritize your pleasure is really, it's a lot of unlearning and relearning because it goes against everything that we have been socialized to believe. It goes against all of the socialization of what should be important and putting other people first. And, you know, maybe I'm being selfish and experiencing all of these sorts of things. But again, when you actually look at what it does for the brain, for the nervous system and for the body, it should be at the top of everybody's priority list because of the way that it creates resilience and compassion, connection, empathy, all of these qualities that we're actually aiming for pleasure is the path. And so that's what I would say about pleasure. Desire is something <laughs> totally, totally separate. And desire is just, you know, that want that's that leaning in. And again, that's not something like as women, we're not taught to desire. We're taught how to be desirable, how to be likable, how to be nice, how to be wanted, how to be looked at well. And again, this isn't a conscious thing. It's not like we're choosing to go about and be like, how am I going to make myself more desirable? But everything that we've been taught, whether it's the qualities or the way that that you don't, you know, talk too loud or you don't act like a boy or, you know, you're being polite with your manners or the way that you're dressing, the way that you put makeup on, that you groom yourself, all of these things that have been passed down have been through the lens of making yourself desirable to society and possibly, you know, a potential spouse in the future. And it wasn't ever taught like, Hey, listen to your desire. Like, what do you want here? Like, what is that thing that you want? Um, 
So that's kind of like the pleasure mm-hmm. and desire conversation. Uh, what was the next question? The pleasure can, and desire. We can stick with this because this okay. is it's a it's a juicy topic. I, and yeah, uh, I did throw a lot at you. I have a I have a tendency as a question asker to get excited and <laughs> wanna, I want to cover all, all these different things. Yes, yes, <laughs> I love it. But what what I'm hearing, while pleasure and desire are both uh, different, they're unique. Mm-hmm. They what I'm hearing in your approach is that they can be cultivated internally and it's an inside out approach instead of Mm a you know being desirable and being the object of pleasure are seeking validation from out there and and thinking that's that is how i will get it instead of checking inward and saying what is what does pleasure look like for me what does desire look like for me and uh, while i'm not a woman uh, i can very easily see just based on the way that I don't know, pop culture, advertising, movies, like so much is thrown at us that shows women as these objects to be chased instead mm-hmm. of instead of humans who have their own needs and desires. Yeah. And I would love to hear you talk about practices that you invite, whether it's yourself, clients, other peers, uh, practices that cultivate pleasure and desire, because I, I've heard you speak to this and it doesn't just come from sex. There's so many other ways we can cultivate it as well. Yeah. Well, I think with desire, I think one of the first things to think about is just creating safety because there's in internal safety, right? So it's like creating that safety in yourself, especially if you are in a monogamous relationship or a committed relationship, even that doesn't have to be monogamous, but if you're in a committed relationship, then giving yourself that safety that it's okay to have desire. Because again, I think for, you know, and this isn't just women, this is just my level of expertise. And the way that most women are socialized is it hasn't been the case that having want and having desire is a safe thing. And so you have to remember for a lot of like most of the work that I'm doing with women with desire and with pleasure is first creating safety Mm -hmm. because historically speaking, pleasure or desire hasn't been safe. And to be honest, in this country, it's not even safe right now in a lot of ways, you know, with all of what's going on in the government and, you know, Supreme Court ruling. And so it is how do we create that safe space that like this part of me and is okay, right? And when you're in a committed relationship, you can have those conversations, you can start with that safety. So that's, that precedes any of the practices helping cultivate desire and pleasure is how do I first create a refuge inside of my body, inside of myself, and then if it's relevant inside of my relationship, so that this feels like a really safe space for me to explore my pleasure for me to experience pleasure, and for me also to cultivate more desire. And I think the interesting thing about cultivating desire is it's totally okay to cultivate desire in the courting, (laughs) you know, in the courting thing for women, it's, it's more encouraged there, but then it's like stops, right. Or like once you're a mom, it's like stops or once you're older, it should stop, you know, like there's all these like rules of when like desire and pleasure is okay (laughs) for us to, right. So then again, like continually creating that safety. So as far as desire is concerned, again, 
it's a leaning in, right? I like to think of it as a leaning in. So what are some of the thing, ways that I'm leaning out and starting to flag those in your head? Like just notice when you lean out, like why am I leaning out? Is it because I'm stressed? Is it because I'm irritated? Is it because it's the wrong time of day? Is it because it's a habit, which is usually what happens? And just starting to listen because that the thing that most women experience and most people in general is there is desire there. There is that spark, whether it's like, Ooh, I really want to start my own business, or I really want to go on a hike today, or I really, really want to create more freedom for myself. We do have those sparks as human. And then immediately can be like squashed with like, the fear or like, can I really do that? Is it possible? Who are you to think you should do that? You know, all these other internal things to squash. So starting to like pay attention, like where is that whisper? Where is that desire? And a great way to do that is just to get into an, I want practice where you take a piece of paper and every single day, just start with, I want dot, 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 and set a timer for like five minutes and just let yourself like write whatever. Like it might just be like, I want a cup of coffee. Like I want softer pajamas. Like it doesn't have to be anything Mm -hmm. big, but start getting in the habit of having wants of having that and being okay with seeing that on paper. So that's a desire thing. When it comes to relationships, I think one of the things to think about when it comes to desire is especially when we've been in committed relationships for a long time, you know, desire is one of the things that wears off. And one of the reasons is, is because the novelty, it becomes your person becomes a habit for lack of a better word. They become just a normal part of your, (laughs) your existence. And so how do we think about that person, like wanting them, because when you're first dating somebody, you think about them all the time. (laughs) Like That's just part of it. You're like, I appreciate them and I want them and I can't wait to see them later. And what are we going to do? And like, you are fueling your brain. Like there's so much, like, if we think about like renting our brain space out, there's so much brain space being rented out to like leaning into this person or wanting this person, we can still do that. You can still create that same emotion, but we have to remember what else is our brain space now being rented out to. It's probably like to-dos and chores and work and all these other things. So on purpose, carving out some time to think about your person in that way. Like, Ooh, it would be so fun if, and I can't wait to blah, 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 or they're so great because of dot, dot, dot really giving yourself that time to actually have desire for your person. I think Mm -hmm. it's huge. There's so much on learning that that word has come up at least once in the conversation so far. And there really is so much unlearning. Like what I appreciate about your response is that you took the time to say, before we worry about what it is that we necessarily desire and, and what would be pleasurable, it's we have to sometimes slow down a little bit and and do the healing work to mm-hmm. to clear the cobwebs because there is just so much conditioning around what we think we should want and should yeah. desire. And uh, so I, I would love to hear ways that you are supportive of it, it sounds like you work mostly with women and is it exclusively with women? No, I don't work exclusively. It's just mostly. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I would say, you know, I think the thing is like when it comes to safety and creating 
you know, that piece is, I think the misconception sometimes out there is like, we need to be fully healed to be able to completely lean into his desire and pleasure. And that's not what I'm saying at all. We do not need to like dive in and heal every single thing, even if you have big T traumas. Like, I think that's really important because for, you know, a lot of women, there is a lot of big T traumas when it comes to sexuality and our body. And that can feel like a lot that can create a lot more resistance. Like I don't actually want to create more desire and more pleasure because it's going to bring up all of this other stuff. And then I'm going to have to heal that. And it just sounds like too much work and too much effort. And to know that you can start creating so much safety and such a refuge in your body and with your nervous system without diving way deep into the trauma. Like if that's something that you really want to do and it's coming up, like that is available and that will deepen your experience, but you don't have to go all the way there. And I think that's really important for people to understand that sometimes it's just putting a hand on your heart Mm -hmm. and like, Hey, I, got you. We're safe. We're not going to do anything that you don't want to do. You know, this is a safe place. Let's take it step by step. Anytime you want to back out and recreating that relationship with your body, that you're on your body side through everything can create so much ease with diving more into the pleasure and desire part of it. Mm -hmm. Well, I would love to hear you talk a little bit more about some of the myths that we have around sex. And one of them is, I don't want to, I don't want to botch the words too much, but I've heard you speak about how a lot of times we want sex to just be this spontaneous act where we, you know, we think we should Mm -hmm. just, it should just happen organically and there's, there's no need to schedule it. So that's definitely one of the myths that I've heard you speak about. And so I, I would love to hear you talk a little bit more about other misconceptions and, and more unlearning that we need to do. Yeah. Oh, there's, I'm like, <laughs> it's funny when you think about like what we've learned about sex, I'm like, is there any truth in any of this? <laughs> I'm just like, okay, basically everything we've learned about sex is a myth um, and we should unlearn, but I, that's a huge one. I think the way that it's been presented to us through the media, through, you know, rom-coms even is it's like this, like flirty, hot, heated thing. And then you're jumping on top of a car and there's pleasure to be had and everybody's <laughs> orgasming at the same time. And it's just this like juicy, fun experience. It's just, like maybe like once in your romantic relationship that could all line up, but there's so many myths just even in that small scene that we have seen a million times in the movie, one of them being the spontaneity. And there is a lot, like this is a huge unlearning. And when you look at desire for women, the way that it's kind of, or desire for everybody is sexual desire has been divided into two things or responsive desire and spontaneous desire and spontaneous desire basically means that you can just think about, or like it maybe just crosses your mind randomly, or you might have like a, a visual or a trigger, like your partner walks in and you're just like, you're ready to go. Right. Like, it's just like done. I'm like, 
I'm really into it. I'm totally turned on. Like, let's go right away. So that's like spontaneous desire. I like to think of it as, you know, the feeling that leaning in precedes action, right? So it's like, you have that thought, I want it. So the wanting precedes the action. The way responsive desire, which is like over 80% of women experience spontaneous, or excuse me, responsive desire is when action, like you're in motion, probably you're kissing, maybe there's some petting going on, maybe there's like, you know, dancing on the dance floor, like there's something going on physically, the motions of your body, and then the wanting kicks in. So then that's the desire kicks in. So action actually precedes the wanting and responsive desire. And so that's just the way that we work as human beings, you know, like either action precedes the wanting or wanting precedes the action. And, but the way that we've been presented is through what most men experience, which is more of the spontaneous desire. And so it's easy to then, you know, (laughs) think that there's something wrong with you, or I'm not doing it right, or I've lost that loving feeling and all these sorts of things. And when it comes to scheduling, I always recommend scheduling. And most people roll their eyes. They're like, we shouldn't have to schedule this. It's supposed to be fun. Why would I schedule it? And I'm like, I schedule, I'm a sex coach and I schedule it. Why? Because I want to have really good sex. Like I want it to be amazing. And when I know it's coming, I can prepare my body. I can create privacy. I can, you know, plan, plan for it, plan my nervous system for it. I can start to get into my body. When I talked about earlier about creating that desire, you can create anticipation for your person. So there's all these things. Why scheduling it and scheduling, it might be like, Hey, it's 11 o'clock. You know, you want to have a rendezvous in a couple hours. Like it doesn't have to be like, you know, every Tuesday, blah, 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 (laughs) but it can be, you know, like there's so many different ways that we can schedule it. Um, So I would say that's one of the biggest myths of just how desire works. Uh, One of the other myths I would just say is when it comes to like penis and vagina for heterosexual couples, like that is the pinnacle of sex. Like when we say sex, usually that's what is people are referring to is penetrative sex. And the, the problem with that is most women, if it's just penetrative sex, this is not the way that we experience sexual pleasure. Like it is not involving any of the clitoris, any other sort of stimulation there. And so when we think of that as the pinnacle then it leaves out women's pleasure completely. And as you've been in a relationship for any amount of time, usually the first thing to go is the foreplay. Like, oh, we don't need that. That's like, well, we were getting to know each other. Let's just skip to the good stuff. Well, the thing that made that the good stuff was all the stuff you were doing before, the leading up to it, the playing around, the flirting, all of that is what actually made the penetrative sex as good as it was at the beginning was all of the lead up that happened. And so leaving that out or thinking, oh, we've been together long enough. We don't need to do all of that is a lot of times why women later in their relationship are experiencing less and less sexual pleasure because they aren't taking the time to really allow their body to become aroused and warmed up because on average, it takes like 20 minutes for a woman just to get fully aroused. And we 
usually never give that kind of time <laughs> mm. for the way it's like a rush, rush society and get it done and checklist. And so, yeah, I would say those are like two of probably the biggest myths. I'm sure there's a lot more that I'm <laughs> not mm. thinking of right now, but I would say those two are some of the biggest ones. Well, one that feels important to me right now, and, and you can check me on this, but it, it just, it feels like it certainly is a myth is that yeah. ma masturbation is something that's more for guys and, and less for women. Yeah. And, and in my circles, I, it's like, if you ask a guy, if they jerk off masturbate, it's like, you probably get like a, <laughs> duh, of course, duh. Yeah. Course I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. come on, bro. Of course I do. Yeah. <laughs> And with women, it's either a no, of course I haven't, or yeah. or a no secret yes, or yeah, or like a very reluctant yes, it from what I've seen. Yeah. And yeah. so I'd love to hear. Oh, I'm so glad you that. brought this up. Yeah, because yeah. it's not brought up a lot, but I'm so glad you brought this up. I think um, yeah, I mean, uh, in general, right? When you think about the way that we're socialized, it's like boys will be boys. Of course, they're doing that. Even that message, like, of course I am, is part of the reason that there is more of that action because it hasn't been shamed on from society. Yes, there is shame with masturbation, especially in, you know, religion and conservative circles for sure, for all people. But I do believe that there is, you know, more, it's, it's more socially acceptable mm -hmm. for, you know, the penis owners of the world to <laughs> have, <laughs> to have that kind of play with themselves with women. I think that is, that is a huge myth. And it's not that they don't, like you said, like there probably is something going on, but I also think that it's the way that it's presented. I like to think of it as self-pleasure. Like there's definitely masturbation. I think of masturbation more as you have like an urge and, or like a scratch to be itched and you're like scratching that itch. Right. And that's, there's nothing wrong with that. Go for that. The way that I also like to really encourage women is this is really a relationship between you and your body. You get to learn about yourself, which is huge because most of us don't really know what we want or what feels good because we have never been encouraged to explore it on our own. <laughs> and what we've been shown in, you know, movies or porn or depictions isn't something that actually is relevant to our pleasure. And so I encourage it just from an exploration point, like really experience what you like, really experience like what, you know, what does your body feel like, or what does it even look like when it's aroused, which is really fascinating for women to like get a mirror and actually look at whatever, how things are looking down there. Um, but it is that, that relationship between being the giver and the receiver, because we're mm -hmm. so used to being the giver. A lot of times, even if we are receiving a lot of the, again, the way that we have learned is making sure that our partner is satisfied. And I did a survey. I don't, it was probably like seven years ago with a gr whole group of women, like what makes a sexually successful session kind of thing. And most women never thought that it wasn't successful if they didn't orgasm, but if their male partner didn't orgasm, it was like 90% of them considered that to be like a failed sexual session. And so just that assumption, right. That like 
they always, you know, men always orgasm. It's like they should, and ours isn't as important, you know, plays a lot into the self-pleasure because it's like, well, why would I need to do that? Or why do I need to find out? It's mostly just important that he's taken care of. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I I think that the self-pleasure, it's definitely, it's an exploration. It's how to learn that relationship of like really receiving pleasure from your body. It allows you to communicate, but there's so many other elements with self-pleasure. It can be a healing thing. It can be something that creates, like, I, I like to think of pleasure as like a buffer and helps create more resilience with us through hard times. So it can be a way to process emotions, express emotions, heal, you know, reconnect to your body. Like there's so many other amazing things. And then also it's just feels good and it's fun. (laughs) And there's the less part of it, right? So there's so many elements there when it comes to masturbation and self-pleasure that can be experienced both by men and women. Mm. Yeah. So that, that bit about your survey where you asked, and what I'm hearing is that women thought if, if the guy doesn't finish, that's terrible. If I don't finish, then not a big deal. It's normal. I can say (laughs) anecdotally, like women think that first of all, blue balls is like another myth that you could probably talk about, but women look at blue balls as like this, almost like a disease. Like, are are you going to, yeah. Are you going to be okay? Am I going to be a, yeah. Right. And like, I'm a tease. Like I created this discomfort, you know, like for you where it's like most all of us are experienced quote unquote blue balls. Every time we have sexual experiences, you know, where we might not orgasm, right. Which it's just like a buildup. And then you have tissues that get all aroused and then that's it. Like, that's the worst. But the way that, like you said, that it's been presented is it's like this horrible ailment where it's really probably some discomfort from -hmm. what I've talked to my husband and other men about for like a few moments. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I mean, that's really all it is. Yeah. So I I would love to hear if we rewind a a little bit in your personal journey, Mm -hmm. when, when this started to become more important to you, I'm sure Mm -hmm. there was some personal uh, healing to be done. And maybe specifically, I I would love to hear some of the challenging conversations that you had with your husband. And if, if that doesn't feel like it's, you know, something you're comfortable talking about, then would love to hear typical uncomfortable conversations that you help folks have, because I I'm imagining a lot of people listening to this, like they're, I, I have their attention. This is highly captivating. Everyone's interested in sex, but it's, it's a different skill to know what you want and mm-hmm. to communicate what you want to a, a partner. So I would love to hear some examples of challenging conversations and how you yeah. help folks uh, get into that. Yeah. I mean, I would say like first, the first one for me in general was just even having the conversation with my husband that this was an area that I wanted to work on because, and this is with everybody. Cause the, again, another myth, like if you're working on your sex life, the assumption is, is it sucks. And that mm-hmm. feels really, really shameful, right? Like it, it's so fascinating because we look at so many other areas of our life and like, Oh, I really want to work on my health. It's like high five. Good job. Or like, go get educated on your health. Right. Or go work on your mental health again, high five. It doesn't mean you have to, you know, have like mental health problems 
because you're working on it. This is just something that of like, wow, like you want to work on that? Like, that's so amazing. Like it doesn't, we don't assume that it's like this problem. And we also don't make, even if it is a problem, it it's considered to be so shameful. So I think that is one of the hardest things that I came across just bringing up the subject to my husband and almost all couples. And what I think prevents a lot of women and couples, anybody from giving themselves the opportunity and the gift to work on this area of their life as part, as far as sexual growth and sexual improvement goes is because the assumption is, is I should be really good at this already. This should come naturally. I shouldn't have to work on it. And if I do, there's something wrong with me. So it feels really shameful or there's something wrong with us. Right. Like, I think that that's the biggest thing is there's something wrong. So, you know, one of the way to navigate is just to first make it not a problem for you in your own experience, right? Like, no, like, I'm just really excited. Like I, there's so many things out there. Like this isn't a pro I mean, maybe, maybe it is like a pain point in your relationship. Right. But like, Hey, I just want to continue to grow closer with you. Or I want to continue to explore what else is possible for us. Or like we've had this grade of sex, like what else is out there? you know, really not making it this shameful thing for you helps so much when you go and talk to your partner, because really it's like, they're going to feed off of your energy. And I think I, you know, at the beginning, before I really knew that I was so hesitant, I was like, you know, I don't want to like, make him feel bad or bruise his ego or do all these things that like I presented it kind of like, you know, a little like, I'm not sure about this versus like, this would be so fun. Let's do this. And so of course that sets the tone. So I think that's the biggest thing is like, why do you want to do it? And, and why, why is this important to you? And I think there's so many ways, like for me, it's just like, I'm, I want to find out what's possible for me in so many ways. And this has stretched my mental capacity and my growth and my breaking down of social barriers and socialization in so many ways. It's like the epitome to me of self-growth. Plus it's that mind body connection at a whole nother level that you experience when you're trying to really be in your body for pleasure. So that's one of the things that comes up. I think the other biggie that comes up is just like you said, like how to bring up what you want. And, and I'd like to say sometimes that we don't like, if you don't know what you like, again, this is like, of course you don't like, I really want to be like, Mm -hmm. of course you don't, because it really hasn't been safe for us to explore what we really like. So if you're like, I kind of have an idea, but I don't really know, please don't go down the shame spiral. Most people don't really know, and you shouldn't, (laughs) instead of going to the assumption we should, let's look at all the reasons why we shouldn't know what we like and give ourselves that grace. And then it can be like, you know what? you could even say that to your partner. Like, I'm not really sure what I like. Like, I thought I kind of like this, but can we try this? Or, you know, bringing like a playfulness and a lightness up is always helpful where it's not so serious. And that creates more safety in the conversation. Um, and what else was I going to say? Oh, also bringing up what you want or ideas that you might have not in the moment 
is very, <laughs> very helpful. Um, because in the moment it can feel very triggering. If you know, like there's certain cues and things that we want to do in the moment, but if you know ahead of time, like I really don't like, like talking dirty all the time, or when you, you know, bite my ear, or bite my lower lip. And that's like a consistent thing, you know, you don't like wait till you're not having sex <laughs> instead of like me before. Like, I really hate it when you bite my ear. Stop it. <laughs> it doesn't usually go over very well uh-huh. from experience. So bring that up like outside of the relationship. Like, Hey, you know, I've been doing this work. I've been really like connecting with my body in a different way. And like that, I, some, something I really liked before, and it just doesn't feel that great anymore. So can we, can we watch that or, you know, that kind of thing. So that's another great way. And asking what your partner thinks. Like, hey, I would really like to explore and figure out like what else we like. Like, what are your thoughts on that? And presenting it as a question versus like we must or demand always creates safety between you and your partner. Mm-hmm. There seems to be a way in which we expect to put in work in a lot of other areas in our life, whether it's at our job, in our health. Like, we know these things don't just happen. And yeah. for some reason, there's an expectation that a good relationship, like sex aside, a good relationship just happens and good sex just happens. Like there's this binary, you're either good at it or you're not good at it. Mm -hmm. And um, there's another thing that's coming up for me around frequency because I could say on a personal level, I've never been one that like had a strong enough sexual desire that I wanted to be having sex like every single day. Yeah, And because of, I guess, the way that I interact with my friends and the way that it's portrayed on TV, it felt like there was a, something defective about me. Mm-hmm. And I would love to hear about uh, frequency and, and how you coach people around that. But because this definitely seems like an area where we should ourselves a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I think we should ourselves on both ways, right? Like I should be having it more or I should, you know, I shouldn't want it so much. Um, you know, it can go in, in both ways. And I think that, you know, I think one of the things that's really important to understand and Emily Nagowski explains this really well, is just like sex drive isn't actually a thing, right? That it's like, it's something that we've created. We call it a sex drive, but there isn't actually such a thing as sex drive. This is the reason we don't watch survival videos with like men on a raft, like wishing that they could have sex instead of like food and water. Right. Cause it's not like you're not going to die without these sorts of things. Again, so much of it is, is uh, socialized and we do have biological tendencies towards desire and that type of connection more. But that being said, I think it's like, it's the frequency question comes up a lot, like how much, how often, I think it really does come down to individual basis. You know, my gauge for most couples is just to start with like once a week, like really like see with like once a week, like as a baseline if it is something that, okay, like, you know, and, and again, uh, like, I want to say like respecting each other's input on this, but like a once a week tends to be a really great 
foundational place and not even foundational. Like that's like where you start, but that could be the perfect place where you also end right again, all couples are different, but I think once a week to gauge how that works for you all is really, really helpful. And this is uh, this, I would say is more in like long-term committed relationships, because I know for me, like when my husband and I first got together, it was like multiple times a day, right? Not just like once a week would have been like, what? That's uh-huh. insane. But now in busy life and like kids and all of that sort of thing, like that is a lot of a, you know, like a, the frequency of once a week is a great place to aim for. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I want to say about you know, the scheduling and also the frequency is to remember that desire doesn't just happen to us. Like we really think that it just is like, we walk along and just like hits us in the face. Like you're walking past a donut shop and you're just hit in the face with the aroma of donuts. And you're like, oh my gosh, I want donuts. We assume that's how it's supposed to be. And so when you set out for like a goal, right? Like thinking about a sex goal of a sex goal of like once a week, then a lot of initial reaction is like, well, what if I don't want it? Like if you tend to be the lower desire partner, like what if I don't want it when we scheduled it? What if I, you know, it doesn't sound good to me. Then do I have to force my body to do it because we made this agreement and really remembering that number one, we're never forcing your body. We're inviting pleasure in is always a great way to think about this. And that you can create desire. Like desire is just like other feelings. Like we can create happiness. We can create sadness with our thoughts. We can create a lot of things like the way that you connect with your body and the way that you use your brain in a skillful way is going to allow you to create desire if that's what you want to do. If And for me, if I have sex coming up, then I do want to create desire. I don't not want it. And then go and do it. Right. So again, that's a really good thing to keep in mind when you are thinking about frequency is, and getting out of the myth of spontaneity is that this is actually something I can cultivate and I can work on. It doesn't have to be something that just happens to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Before I move on, I would love to hear ways that you cultivate desire in, in your relationship. So like, I'm imagining you, you schedule some time and mm-hmm. maybe you're not quite in the mood for it, but you know that you're about to have sex. So what are, what are some ways that you can kind of stoke the desire within you? Like, is it slowly kissing, rubbing each other's bodies? Mm-hmm. Is it like embracing each other, all the above, none of the above? Yeah. Oh, well, I have like, so many lists. Like this is what I help my clients create kind of like their desire cultivating list. But I think from the first thing is creating anticipation and desire with your brain, right? So it's like what I was saying at the earlier part of our conversation is getting your person's brain on your mind in a desirable way, right? Not getting your person on your brain, like, oh, they forgot to do this or they never do this or they're cleaning that. So like, like helping get it them on your brain in a desirable way. And some of the easiest way to think about that is how often am I thinking about my partner and what are my predominant thoughts about them? Because as we fall into relationship with people, a lot of times our predominant thoughts might be 
our habitual patterns might be our to-dos that we're doing. It might be like this checklist of things. Like, did you feed the dog? Did you, you know, make sure you got the groceries? Did you take care of the, oh, those weeds need done. Like, it's like in this very like passing task sort of way. So how much of your mental space is actually thinking about your person in a way that's attractive, a way that's appreciative, you know? So like, it might be like, for me, I love my husband's hands. So I think of his hands Mm -hmm. on purpose on my body. And that helps me you know, look forward to our date night, right? Look forward to that because that is something that really turns me on. So it's like, what are some of the things that are turning you on? But one of the ways to think about that are also maybe what are some of the ways that are turning me off? Like, am I thinking about all the things they're doing wrong? Am I blaming them? Am I all these other things? all these other things that they might not be doing or the way that they're not appreciating me. And how can we begin to turn those tables towards, you know, the appreciation and the gratitude. And there's a lot more to go into that, but that's just like a quick, like thinking about them, like you would at the beginning, like with rose colored glasses on them, all the ways that they like really just light you up. Um, And then when it comes to like actual time of is I love to, I have this whole list of things I do with my clients where you're creating a bridge to the bedroom. So it's really like bridging to that interaction with the bedroom. So before the kissing, before the touching, before any of that, really checking in with your body and seeing what maybe you need to be able to land into your body. Like if you were going to be receptive of pleasure, if you were going to be, I like to think of it as like this hospitable environment for pleasure to happen. If I'm super stressed, if I'm thinking about stuff going on in my work, if I still have a client that is like, I'm thinking about all of their problems. My husband also owns a business. Like if there's a bunch of stuff that he's going on, if we just got done with like, you know, something crazy with the kids, you know, whatever it may be, that's not really a hospitable environment for pleasure. Like I feel tense. I feel worked up. Maybe I feel worried. Maybe I feel stressed. So what is going to help create more of a hospital environment? Sometimes that's like just a quick meditation. Sometimes that's breathing. Sometimes that might be, you know, going on a walk by myself, listening to music. Like what are some of the ways that you can relax your body enough and kind of disconnect from what was going on earlier in the day so that you can be present in your body and with your partner. And then, you know, once things get going, there's a number of things (laughs) that can help stoke desire, but really thinking about slowing down and receiving, like that's, that's the thing about pleasure is like, how are we allowing ourselves to be present for what the senses and our sense organs are giving to us. So, you know, maybe it's a smell, maybe it's a touch, maybe it's a a sound that you hear, like really being present. This is sensuality. Sensuality we think of as sexuality, but sensuality is really just turning the senses on. So how to turn and waken the senses, which is naturally going to wake your body up and allow for arousal to happen more easily. Mm. I would love to hear you, like you talked about cultivating, it it sounds like more of an internal environment. So it might be Mm -hmm. taking a walk or going on a meditation or priming yourself so that you're more attuned to your senses. 
Mm-hmm. And I know that you and I share this in common. We're both highly sensitive people. And so our external environment matters a lot. And mm-hmm. I'm curious to hear if there's any way that you set up your external environment in a way that supports desire and pleasure and, and your sex life. And I imagine yeah. it's yes. <laughs> yes, for sure. Well, you know, I think I didn't know that, like you and I said before we hopped on this call before the recording started, like I didn't know that I was highly sensitive um, before, but there was a lot of things that I did. And now that I know that even more, there are ways. And I think this, whether you're highly sensitive or not, that really help, which is to focus in on one sense or some of those things that really turn you off. Right. So for me, one of the things that would really turn me off is like, I get cold really easily. So if my temperature is getting cold really easily, then it's really hard to take your clothes off and get naked and relax and have a good time like cold. So, you know, making sure the temperature is the right, you know, what would be worth it for you. You know, um, the other thing to think about is like, so I did wool socks, you know, maybe a cardigan sweater or a robe, you know, something that can open, but I'm still kind of warm. Maybe it's warm blankets. Maybe it's, maybe you get really hot. So you need to open a window. So thinking about those turn offs, like that's the biggest thing is like, what are the things that are taking me away or turning off? A lot of people have issues with privacy. Like they're afraid somebody else is going to overhear them, whether, you know, they're in an apartment or they are in a house that's shared with other people. So creating that safety, maybe that's locking a door, maybe that's putting a white noise machine on. That's something else that I do. You know, uh, maybe it's even putting earplugs in that might not create the privacy issue, but hearing noises can take me out of the moment really easily. So sometimes I'll even put like small earplugs in that helps me be more present in my body and more connected to my partner. What else is there? Closing your eyes. That's the biggest one, closing your eyes. So there's so much, again, like this thought that we always need to be like locking eyes, like madly with our partner, you know, to show that we're connected to them. And at the beginning for me to really come back to my body. And this was one of the things I had to communicate to my husband was like, Hey, my eyes are going to be closed. It allows me to really focus on like what's going on and what feels good and what we're doing. It's not me trying to disconnect from you, but it's me actually being more present with what's going on because the eye contact, or even just having your eyes open in general can distract you from like the sensation of touch, which can be the best sensation to be present for, obviously, mm-hmm. during sex. There's so much gold in here and, and so many practical tidbits and pieces of advice that you have. And before we move to the back end of the conversation, I, mm-hmm. I have a, a couple more things about this. I know that you have an 11-year-old and an 8-year-old, mm-hmm. both girls. Mm-hmm. And I think another thing that's pervasive in American culture is that parents have no fucking idea how to talk to their children about sex, (laughs) sexual desire. And if, if if sex comes up in like with my family, it shit gets weird. If other people talk about like, maybe do your, do you think your parents have sex? It's like everyone goes, you know, the the blinds and curtains go up of like, what the word. Okay. Next, next subject. And yeah, I'd be curious to hear if that's something that you talk to your kids about and, and when do you recommend we start talking to children about sex? 
Yeah. So first off, I would say I'm not an expert on this at all. There's tons of experts out there about like sexual education of children and good timing and all of that. So I'll just say from my knowledge, but also with the caveat, I'm learning because I'm just getting into that age with my kids and I'm definitely, this is not where my expertise lies, but the way that I'm planning to approach it, number one is One of the things that I realized early on, especially with my oldest daughter, as her body is starting to change is how much we wrapped up body understanding, especially, you know, in puberty with sex, right? So there's definitely a sexual element, but how much of the education was wrapped up in like puberty and sex are like the same education in most public schools, rather than these being totally different things. And so with her, what I first started was just like, there was a book that I found, like my body changes and it's just about her body. Like Mm -hmm. her body changing doesn't need to be tied to sexuality and all the things and like that are involved with that, or, you know, boys might start looking at you different, like these kind of talks that I got when I was that age, where it became this very fearful thing, because my body changed all of a sudden. Now I'm an object that other people might find pleasing versus like celebrating like, oh my gosh, my body's changing in all of these ways. So I've really just tried to approach first that conversation completely different than the way that it was brought up to me, which is like your body is changing. And this is a celebratory thing and all bodies change. And these are the ways that our body changes. So I think that is one thing to keep in mind. And I find it so fascinating. Again, this is newer to me, so I'm not an expert, but I love thinking about that using anatomical correct parts is another thing that's always been important to me. Like you know, even my eight-year-old daughter, she talks about her vulva. Like most women, grown women don't know that you can't actually see your vagina. That's inside of your body. So we think we're calling it anatomically correct being like, oh, my vagina, but it's like, that's just the internal canal. Like you can't actually see your vagina Mm -hmm. unless you're all up in like gynecology, you know, gynecological exam or something like this isn't, even present to our eyes. So just explaining like, oh yeah, that's this. And that's this, you know, like in anatomically, anatomically correct terms was important to me. Um, and then as far as like the sex conversation, we actually haven't had much of that yet because it hasn't been brought up and I've mostly focused on how their bodies are changing and, you know, touch and my body, my choice. And, you know, that kind of thing of like noticing when touch doesn't feel good and consent, even like consent with tickling or when we're wrestling or like these other kinds of things. So bringing up consent from the very beginning, when it comes to touch Mm -hmm. and physicality, even hugging, right. Cause a lot of times with consent with kids, we're like, give your uncle a hug. And it's like mm. making them do these things that aren't consensual for them or their body. So really helping with consent. There's a lot of books out there about like the right time. And a lot of children I know that are younger have had the sex conversation, but because they showed curiosity and because it was coming up a lot, my oldest has not shown that even though we're getting like, it's probably happening this summer, but like, (laughs) you know, we're getting, (laughs) we're getting there and we're going to be having more of that conversation. So I think it's listening to your kids and the curiosity and the things that go on, but talking to them about 
safe touch and consent and that sort of thing is appropriate from like two years old on. Mm -hmm. Well, I really appreciate your, your holistic understanding of the human anatomy and physiology. And that this is a, a whole body approach. And mm -hmm. I think to a lot of people that will come across as really radical, but to me, it, it makes a whole lot of sense. And there's uh, something else that really affects our physiology. And I, I don't know if this is, again, an area that you would necessarily pay attention to, but our nutrition and the food that we eat certainly mm -hmm. plays an impact on our energy and, uh, and the way that we show up in our life. And I'd be curious to hear if there's any, I don't know, foods that you eat specifically or foods that you recommend that support sexual desire, sexual energy, anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. I interviewed somebody on this subject because this is not my expertise at all, but I interviewed somebody on my subject and there's a book actually called like nutrition for sex or se like for good sex or something like that, like nutrition for better sex. And there's a whole list and there's like menus. And that's the person that I interviewed for that. But there is definitely a lot, especially for men's sexual health. Like this actually has a very impactful, you know, when we look at erectile dysfunction, all these sorts of things like that has a direct impact um, on the longevity of those sorts of you know, abilities. So nutrition can play a huge role for sure mm -hmm. in that. And there is a great book on that written by an acupuncturist. Mm -hmm. Well, I would love to hear books. You've, you've recommended a couple of them and they've come up uh, multiple times. So just maybe a, it doesn't have to be limited, but at least one or two books that you would recommend that that pertain to sex and and what we've discussed already today. Yeah. So Emily Nagowski, Come As You Are, that's um, one that's that's a great book just to kind of explain some of the things that I brought up, like the stress cycle or, you know, the things that might play into that. Another book is Beyond Satisfied. This is a newer book. Um, this is really great book for men um, to read. Um, Kenneth does a great job really like going in depth of not just like this, you know, anatomy, but techniques and all that sort of thing. You know, those are like the two that come to mind right now, as far as is it she comes first is another good one to read, you know, honestly, like there there's books, it just, it just depends, like what is the angle that you're coming at a lot of the angle that we've talked about on this podcast, and the angle that I like to come to my clients are so those are a couple of the books that I would recommend as uh, she comes first is another great book, but a lot of the topics that have come up in this conversation and what we're talking about, weren't things that I read from these type of books. These are great, you know, books for a number of different things, but really thinking of the whole picture. And I think that is a different approach than what we've typically taken when it comes to sexuality is thinking that it's just like 
physical skill, like just a technique and a physical skill rather than it being that real internal work. And especially for the women that I work with and that I come across and most every single woman that I talk to, it isn't so much that we're lacking in technique or we need a new position or we should be, you know, self-pleasuring more. It is what I was saying at the beginning, like, how are we creating a hospitable environment in our relationship and in our body that pleasure and desire even have a chance to exist? And that is really the key here. So when we're looking at things that turn us on rather than turn us off, what are all of those belief systems that we've been socialized or those myths that we've been socialized? Even if it comes down to like, I need to be taking care of like my kids all the time, or I need to get onto this work email that actually disconnect us more from our body, that take us away from prioritizing pleasure, that keep us from connecting. Like, what are the ways that we're really you know, preventing pleasure from even having a chance to begin with? And how might we rekindle that relationship between ourselves and our senses and then pleasure as like, you know, the cherry on top? Mm -hmm. Well, Danielle, uh, before I move on to more rapid fire type of questions, I like to ask all my guests, is there anything that feels important to you that you would like to invite into the conversation now that we have not already spoken about? Let's see. I think the biggest one for anybody listening in one of the biggest turnoffs that I think come across for most people that we don't even acknowledge is the way that we're the internal narrative that we have towards ourselves and the internal narrative that we might have towards our bodies if we're thinking of our bodies kind of as this separate thing, because those internal narratives actually have the biggest impact on our desire and pleasure. Because if you're sitting there being like, gosh, like my business is such a failure, or I can never get things right. Or then maybe you're saying like, my body just doesn't work the way that I want, or I should want sex a lot more, or I'm not, you know, I'm not attractive enough for my partner, like all of that kind of thing. When we really think about the impact that that has on the nervous system, it's like this constant internal verbal abuse towards yourself. And when we do that, we're, you know, triggering into <laughs> a putting our nervous system into a defense place, which makes us very resistant to any kind of touch. But the other thing that happens when we're doing that, when we're you know, really being unkind to ourselves is we're not having a trusting relationship between our essence and our body, right? We're not having this trusting relationship. And so how can we go into these vulnerable experiences, whether it's a self-pleasure session or one with your partner, where you're asking your body to show you all the pleasure that's available and to experience all this pleasure when we've been beating it down and having it take a toll on us consistently. And we're like, oh, now can you perform for me? Now can you give me the goods? <laughs> so I just like to think, I think that's one of the, the main things that I think is overlooked is this relationship we have with ourselves and our body, sex related or not, it still has an impact on your ability to access desire and pleasure. Mm-hmm. Yes. So many roads in uh, the developmental space lead back to self-compassion and for yeah. treating yourself the way that you would want to treat another person. So I'm, I'm really glad yeah. that you brought that in. Yeah. So just a few more questions. I always say that they're 
kind of rapid fire nature, but the answers do not have to be limited to any amount of time. What is something that folks would be surprised to learn about you? Probably that my favorite type of books to read are science fiction. Mm. Uh (laughs) I would say that, I mean, maybe the people that don't know me as close, like they wouldn't, but I think it's just that that kind of nerdiness about me. Like you'll either find me reading a brain book or like I'm reading a sci-fi series right now or sci-fi fantasy sort of thing. Um, I think that would probably be one of the more surprising things about me. Uh I was asked this question in a coaching course, not the one that we took together, the power of body transformation, but I was asked this question in a different coaching course. And I, I wanted to ask I wanted to bring this into my podcast. Yeah. What, what was a moment that you felt truly loved and what was happening in that moment? Mm. There's been, uh, there's been quite a few, but I feel like there was this moment I was actually in a self-compassion training. This was years ago with Krista Neff and Christopher Germer when they did in-person ones, like, I don't know, eight years ago. Mm -hmm. And I was in a training with them and I had done some meditation. I was working a lot on like self-compassion and like for the first time, like with my, like it felt like a much needed hug, you know, like when someone's like, what's the matter with you? And you're like, Oh, nothing. I'm fine. And then you hug, they hug you and you just fall apart like that kind of moment. But it felt like that between me and you know, me and me. And it was just like, this moment was like, Hey, like I've seen everything you go through and like all of like your quote unquote flaws, all of your struggles, all of your challenges, all of your gifts, all of these sorts of things. And like, I really love you. Like, and that just felt like this, this acknowledgement from myself that I had never given myself before, honestly. Cause I think unless it's like an achievement or something we're proud of, creating really that love, but it was that, I think that was one of the first moments that I ever truly felt loved by myself to myself. Yeah. Yeah. That's really beautiful. What's an ordinary everyday moment that brings you great joy. Mm, That's easy. Every single day I cuddle my children in the morning and at night, like this is very important to our family. Mm -hmm. It's like a cuddle puddle and Bruce, (laughs) we have like a 92 pound pit bull, like our huge dog. So in the morning, like we actually wake the kids up like 15 minutes early and schedule that out between like the rush of the day. And we all cuddle and there's lots of slobber from the dog and giggles. And it's just something that we do every single morning. So snuggling and cuddling and having Bruce lick our faces off. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I love it. Do you, do you have a favorite song that gets you in the mood to have sex? Ooh, that's a great question. Yes. Well, there's a few. I have like a whole playlist, but I would say one of them is Gooey by the Glass Animals. That's a really good one. And then if I'm feeling kind of like more naughty, there's a couple like weekend songs that really do it for me. Like, (laughs) what is the one? I can't think of it now, but it's, I don't know. I don't know the, the, the name of the song off the top of my head, but it's one of their first weekend ones where it's like taking off your clothes and giving dollar, like you work for it, girl. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Yep. Do you have a favorite song to listen to when you're sad? Mm, when I'm sad, you know, 
I don't have like a go-to sad song. It kind of depends. Like if I'm in a sad mood and I really want to be with my sadness or if I'm sad and I'm like ready to get out of my sadness, I'm a huge Kendrick Lamar fan. And so there's a lot of his songs that I listen to that sometimes when I'm sad or, or when I'm angry. And then there's a Steven Smith song, like, I can't remember. I don't know names to songs. <laughs> there is, there okay. is another. Yeah. But I would say, I, yeah, the Kendrick Lamars are, are great for me. And then, you know, what I'm sad, maybe it might be more of like a Nora Jones, like really just being with like the feels. Mm-hmm. So where would you invite my listeners to connect with you? I, I know that you do one-on-one coaching, you have mm-hmm. group coaching, uh, you have a podcast. So where would you invite my listeners to connect with you? I, yeah. So my podcast is called it's my pleasure. So I talk a lot about just pleasure in general, not just sexual pleasure, but all the things that get in the way that we're socialized to whether it's mind, whether it's body, whether it's, you know, actual tactics and techniques. So that's a great place. Currently I am not engaging on Instagram, but I have a very robust Instagram account with tons of videos and (laughs) captions and all of that. That's at danielle.savory. And then yes, I have one-on-one coaching, which I recently reopened for shorter terms. I'd only done like year longs before. And so now you can work with me for three or six months. So that's a great way. And then I have a membership that's just for women called the turned on woman. And we really work on the things that I talked about just becoming lit up and alive and turned on in all the ways. So it's not just sex. Cause I think that's like the misconception is like, Oh, do I have to talk about sex all the time? It's like, no, we're talking about really like, what is keeping me from being connected to my pleasure and my sensuality and like my aliveness in general. And then this is one of the few memberships where you can also ask all the sex questions and get the videos and the diagrams and everything else that you might need to up that part of your life. Awesome. And I know you wanted to raise awareness for the Lovelace Foundation as well. So I'm going to link to that and all of the resources that we discussed today in the show notes. And the final question that I ask every single guest, the podcast is called Mike's Search for Meaning. And so I love to hear in in your words, in Danielle's words, what does it mean to live a meaningful life? Hmm. I think for me, living a meaningful life really means acknowledging and creating more awareness on where I'm falling into autopilot. And sometimes autopilot is great, right? Like we don't want to be thinking about how to wash our hands every time we're washing our hands, but where are those places that I'm kind of just checked out and on autopilot in general, and how might I become more present with what's happening in my body and with what's happening in connection. And that always brings deeper connection with my relationships, right? So really just like being present, like really connecting with my partner, connecting with my family, connecting with my friends. And where am I just operating on the surface level there? Mm -hmm. Well, Danielle, it's truly been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. And I I know that that's a a funny word to use at the end of this conversation. I really enjoyed it. And I think that the work that you're doing is so important. And 
I've been for a while looking to have someone who, if not a sex coach, someone who is well-versed in sexuality on the podcast, because Mm -hmm. I'm really passionate about aliveness and wholeness. And I think in our sexuality, there really lies liberation in like Mm -hmm. getting to the core of who the fuck we really are and allowing that to just go through us. And it isn't, it's not just something that is limited to the bedroom. It, It does permeate into all other areas of our life. And I did not come to that realization until relatively recently, but Mm. all of these disparate things that don't seem like they're connected, they all contribute to our wholeness and and humanity. And so I I really commend the work that you're doing and, uh, and how thoughtful you are in your approach. And it's, it's truly been a a pleasure to, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but it's been a (laughs) real pleasure to have you on the podcast. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you just for bringing this conversation to your podcast. Cause typically this is not, you know, a place that I get to talk. And so I just really appreciate your courage and braveness and bringing up a taboo subject that all of us really want to be talking about more. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And to all the listeners, I, I hope that you tune into your pleasure, your desire, and whenever that you are listening, you take good care and peace and love. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Mike's Search for Meaning. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends, and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends. And until then, stay safe, stay well, and keep living with purpose. Peace.